When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Radio Killed the Video Star. And my guest today, as well as being a big name in radio, is quite the music aficionado. I used to work for MTV back in the 90s, and then on and off for another two decades after that. And MTV was always like my kind of family, I guess, in terms of the places I've worked. And it will always have a special little place in my heart. I also had my first uh, child when I was working there. My son, Jake, got pregnant with him and had him when I just started working for MTV and also was pregnant with Ella, my daughter, when I left MTV the first time around. So definitely part of the family in many ways. A little music trivia question for you. What was the first ever video to be shown on MTV when it launched in New York just after midnight on the 1st of August 1981? The first ever video to be shown on MTV. Well, that was your thinking time. It was Video Killed the Radio Star. By the way, in case you thought it was Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, that came six years later when MTV Europe was launched. But back then in 1981, MTV was round the clock music videos. That's literally all it showed. It was a 24 seven music video jukebox. And it pretty much had the market on that sewn up until about 1999, when along came Napster, followed by YouTube a few years later and MySpace. And along the way, MTV started showing long form programming. It had the first reality shows, road rules and the real world, and animation like Beavis and Butthead and cult shows like The Head, The Max and Aeon Flux. And nowadays, the M in MTV no longer stands for music. They took the music out of music television. I'm always on time. I, 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 uh, I live in fear of not being on time. That's my guest today, Colin Murray. So another quick trivia question for you. What is the most ever played music video in the history of MTV? Give you a little clock ticking, tick, tick, tick. It was Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. I have to say, I hate that video. Sorry, is that not a popular thing to say? Couple more facts for you about MTV. The space rocket footage in the original MTV opening sequence was taken from the first launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia and the Apollo 11 moon mission. The footage was used until early 1986 when it was scrapped following the failed Challenger launch that resulted in the tragic deaths of seven astronauts. Originally, MTV's station tag was going to be Neil Armstrong's famous One Small Step for Man, One Giant Leap, for mankind. However, problems obtaining the rights to the quote arose and they ended up scrapping that plan in favour instead of the popular slogan, ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. I've got good internet, I'm just on the BBC staff Wi-Fi, right? So 
Is your is your Wi-Fi good? Colin Murray is one of the most passionate and fascinating interviewers and broadcasters on the planet. He's well known and loved for his shows on BBC Five Live, but his broadcasting career spans nearly three decades. And as well as his prolific radio output, his television work is not inconsiderable, and it includes presenting Match of the Day two and covering snooker and darts for the BBC. As I mentioned, he's big into music and has presented ITV2's coverage of the Brit Awards. And he's also credited as the interviewer for Lock the Box, a 40-minute video interview with Noel and Liam Gallagher, which discusses the tracks selected for the band's retrospective album, Stop the Clocks. Colin and I talked about communities, red carpets, late night radio, Will Smith, sport, music, fame, Ronnie Wood, How to Get a Good Interview, Adele, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Snooker, Jimmy White, Secrets, the BBC and social media. But I started by asking him how he was feeling about being interviewer turned interviewee. I don't do much at all. I'm very private. So, uh, but then I can, you can be personal without giving away private things. I've learned, um, you know, because I'm always very honest in the radio and I can refer to things to um, explicitly go into personal detail, you know? Yeah. So I think there's a difference between privacy and, and personal. So like on the radio, we talk about mental health and I can say, oh yeah, my mental health's bad at the moment. I don't need to go into the specific why, you know? People seem to feel like you're their mate because they obviously mm. hear you. And I'm sure you get this a lot that you generate something with your listeners where everybody's like, I'm sort of part of that kind of you sent you, you do create a sort of community who feel like they know you pretty yeah. well. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange one. That's kind of what it is. If it's not that it's nothing really, whether it's no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're talking about, no matter whether it's really serious or it's frivolous and daft, it's still only about the people listening for, for many reasons. A, they 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 pay money to have the service, so they pay your wages. But but also, um, it, radio is about company and communication and, and conversation. And so sort of, I I learned from good people when I was when I was younger because I never wanted to work in radio or TV. So I just landed in it, and then asked a lot of people for advice. And um, I think I never forget about just being one person you're talking to, you know, it's basically like a, like a table and someone's, there's an empty seat at that table. So, so, if I, so I'm talking, if, if I'm on the conversation, say about um, how we're going to spend this 660 million pound every year to tackle homelessness, you have to have an empty seat for the listener. Otherwise well, they're just, Eve, they're just standing at the window looking in at you mm-hmm. going, well, why aren't I involved? Mm-hmm. So uh, you got to be very careful not to talk at people. Um, so yeah, that is quite genuine because I don't really enjoy any other part of the industry. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't go to places. I'm, I'm a bit reclusive. I don't have, I'm awkward socially. So I don't, I really, I don't do interviews really. So I've just got sort of the audience, and that's I've always only ever had the audience really. That's been the only solace. That's the bit I love, especially on on radio. You know. So you really, because it's funny to think of. I know we're all, um, we make it look effortless on stage and on air because we're probably 
full of effort in our real lives. I think that's probably not uncommon for all of us. But is it? It's because you've done lots of telly. I mean, you've got you've got a hell of a lot of credits to your name. You're you're not necessarily someone who'd walk into Sainsbury's and get accosted by everybody. Although I'm sure lots of people do know who you are. But are, are you really someone who's kind of socially awkward and would find it harder to be sort of doing the kind of yeah. red car- red carpet and going to the Groucho Club and stuff? I've never been on one unless I've been getting paid. I've been on the edge of red carpets. You know when like Sony pay you to um i once get I, I sort of they would pay me to do red carpet interviews believe it or not when there's kind of like a premiere of a film in london the the company that runs it whether it be warner brothers or sony or whatever they record the actual red carpet bit with the presenter and then send it off to the next place say like prague or paris and say you have to copy that you know it's very so so i used to do quite a lot of work of that so um i remember doing hitch which is the Will Smith, a big yeah. Will Smith fan. I remember hosting the premiere of that. And I got on really well with Will Smith. I'd interview him earlier in the day and he was always a hero of mine. So this probably sums up, this isn't a random story. It kind of sums things up. So kind of got on quite well. Didn't send anything to embarrass myself. And they never watched their own film. Obviously they've seen it before. So they walk down the red carpet, they go in, somebody makes a speech, they open a credit start and they all go out the back door. Yeah. They, they always leave. sit on the end of the row, yeah. come in though, yeah, they're gone. and slip out discreetly. Well, would you imagine having to watch your own film 40 times in 40 days? I think would be pretty Exactly. And they know about it. They're in it, right? (laughs) So so anyway, so I just by chance was going up the stairs to get my bag and Will Smith was coming down on his own. I mean, how often do you get that moment with a a Hollywood megastar just to tune And he went, Colin, really nice to meet you. And he, he went in like this. So I went in like that, but just at the last minute, he went like that. And I, I, this sums me up. So I had a panic up and I'm like, is he going to, and, and I just grabbed his fist and shook it like that. And he, and it's sort of, so the last sort of look at it, Will Smith, there's him looking at me like this. <laughs> and just walking you, off. You, you yeah. grabbed a fist, you reverse fisted <laughs> Will Smith. We I reverse fisted Will as, Smith. Yeah, we won't put that as the soundbite. But yeah, so I don't really have that side. The odd time, you know, you, you genuinely do meet somebody who's famous, who you form a friendship with. Um, but there again, that's few and far between. Because I think if you want to interview people, you've got even if it's sport or music, you got to be careful about losing that objectivity. You know, um, once when I once met this girl. This is way back in my, in my late twenties and she uh, mid twenties ish. Anyway, um, she was way. You know, when you're batting so above your 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 average, and we were in Selfridges and we walked around the corner in the Selfridges shop. And literally, I went, boom, into Noel Gallagher. Just like the most random thing. Now, I'd done work with Noel Gallagher. I, I worked writing stuff for them on some of their records. Uh, it's just a random thing. I used to work in the office, sit in the Oasis office. And uh, so creation, we know each other. In the Creation for, for Records that. office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so for that, no, no, for his manager, for Big oh, Brother. For his man- oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so for that reason, I know him, but to me, it, it, you know, it, he's not Noel, Noel got very yeah. down to earth guy. So that's how I know him from that, not from, you know, anything else. But anyway, banged into me and he just went, all right, Cole. And I said, suddenly went, you were right, in the Noel. right league. Just walked along and I, it was the greatest thing there. At that moment, I think it was only like the third time I'd seen this girl and I knew she was thinking, I can do better than this guy. I can do way better than that. And I think that no moment got me a, <laughs> a couple of months. But um, yeah, no, I don't. It, it's for me, it is that I'm, I'm a kind of, I don't even know what you asked, but yeah, I'm generally just, uh, I'm a very private with my own stuff, but very personal with my listeners. And that's the way I like it, you know. 
So is there, um, I know I used to find, because you and I were working in similar, I worked at MTV for the first time in the early 90s for a few years. Mm. And so we used, I used to do a lot of stuff at the awards and stuff. And I always used to feel okay if like you, if I had a job, if I was working on the production or I was with when Anton Deck used to do the um, the version of it for the ITV, I used to be with them, sort of chaperoning them. And I felt like I had a mm. job. They didn't feel like celebrities. I just felt like this is what I'm doing. But the thought of being at an after party for four hours just yeah. hanging oh, out. God, I found, awful. I absolutely hated all that. Well, and I mean, what not... do you talk about? I mean, it's, I just, I, I find it hard to do conversations and this is, this is on me. This is not on people who have these conversations. I find it really hard to do the, what do you do conversation? You know, where do you live? How many kids you got? Do you like cats or dogs? The really. Don't mention fucking cats and dogs again. We know why that's a sore <laughs> point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I find it hard to do those conversations without then turning, you know, someone will say, me, what do you do? Oh, I'm a journalist. Oh, great. What do you do? Oh, well, what can I buy? You know, strangers at parties. The next thing out of my mind, for some reason, will be something like, would you rather live on Mars or, you, you know, at the bottom of the ocean or something stupid? Do you know what I mean? I can I always go off on the tangent so Which is quickly. what's good and- on your radio show. I can imagine it's a bit disconcerting at a dinner party. But it's... <laughs> <laughs> but you pick sort of weird ent- seemingly weird entry points you know i'm just going to ask you these five questions they're sort of random let's go and then you get all this stuff that probably yeah. if you went in in a linear way you wouldn't get so is that kind of conscious thing that you very do? much conscious it's yeah. very observant of you it absolutely so it, it depends it, it's interesting people think say presenting breaking news or interviewing somebody big and famous is difficult Sorry, sorry. People think presenting breaking news is difficult mm-hmm. and doing a half hour slot on landscape gardening or the inside of golf ball is easy. It's the opposite, right? Breaking mm-hmm. news is who, why, where, what, when. Mm-hmm. Now, it might take its toll on you mm-hmm. if you're covering something tragic, something that's unfolding where there's, there, there, you know, you're, you're seeing tragedy, you're seeing horrific things. That is the hard part of it is actually being able to disconnect a bit to just present what is happening at the moment with some, mm-hmm. you know, crazed gunman or whatever. But it's not difficult in terms of the journalistic side of it. What's happening? Where is it happening? Why is it happening? When's it happening? And what's happening next? It, you know, it's really quite basic sort of journalism 101. Um, so with interviews, people think uh, it's hot. It's, you know, it, it's a hard interview and unknown. That's easier because mm-hmm. most people listening don't know. Mm-hmm. So if I'm interviewing an up and coming band or whatever, or uh, you know, an up and coming author, I can ask them in because the most people listening haven't read the book. Mm-hmm. But if you're interviewing when you're interviewing Irvin Welsh, mm-hmm. you cannot ask him the same eight questions that every other interview's asked him. You you mm-hmm. need to get somewhere else. And and you see, I think it's to do with our brains because they are subconsciously waiting on that question, consciously and subconsciously mm-hmm. knowing. And they so you've got how can I how can I not do a and a reverend interview for no reason. I hate mm-hmm. that. I hate mm-hmm. that. One of my tabloid interviews. No, I hate the tabloid stuff, but I also hate the other where people just say, you know, I'm interviewing Will Smith and we're not going to ask a single mainstream mm-hmm. question. I can't stand that either. That's so for me, it's about yeah. just jogging their brains and almost unlocking bits they haven't thought about. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I was, again, it's just good teaching. I was working on something back in 2012, so like 10 years ago. And uh, a guy I was working with said, why do you never watch any of the stuff? It was a sports thing, an Olympic thing. Why do you not watch the stuff? You read everything, but you don't actually watch the person win gold. 
I thought that's a really good point. He said, go back and watch the heats the, the, and just look for little things. And yeah, I remember one interview with Adrian Murnhouse. I went, you were the only one wearing a white t-shirt. Everyone else was, was just in there. But gee, smugglers when they're coming out for the race. And uh, and from that led to a conversation about his lucky pants that he had cut up in Moscow in a fit of rage. And was and then we had a chat about, you know, it went to a really dark place for him. So sometimes the little thing is what gets you to a place that they didn't think they'd go to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. None of them like trying to get, you know, the most personal, as I say, personal, but not, I don't invade uh, privacy. Mm-hmm. Like I have an interview running tonight with Michael C. Hall, who's mm-hmm. Dexter. Mm-hmm. And Dexter, I mean, had, you know, in those five series to Dexter, the first five of the eight. That was some big shit six, going on there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, cancer, recovering from yeah. cancer. Marrying the 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 girl, the actress who was playing a sister mm-hmm. on screen, mm-hmm. only to divorce her, to then have an affair with her because mm-hmm. he was adopted in the TV show. That so it's then for them to be have a love interest. So how do you do that without the the, the person going? What's in your business? <laughs> so how do you do that? So th- so this is a live example then. So yeah. you think about all the preps. I know I said to you before when you said you'd do yeah. this, I said, oh, it's minimal prep. And you were like, I'm fine with prep. And I thought, yeah, actually, what a stupid thing for me to have said you're fine <laughs> with prep. It's what you did for a living. But you've yeah. got all this stuff going on then. So, t- so tonight you've yeah. got you know, you've got the radio show coming out. You'll be on air for yeah. um, two and a half hours. So you've got other things to be thinking about. So what is the process right now? So you've got him coming in. You've got the show. Yeah, no, he's pre-wrecked. So that's good. So, so he's, that, done that's, that's, he's, he's done already. He's done already. And then okay. so on Tuesday night's midnight meet. Some of them are live, but most of them are pre because I, I like to put the music and clips in. And how was that? So are you... more of a soundscape. Yeah, which, by the way, what a great thing is I was doing something with the BBC. I just, every time I listen to it, I'm like, ah, oh, what wouldn't I give for that? The Les Dennis one, for example. You just got yeah. me with all the clips and you're just in. It's so- just, it's so important to have a good editor and stuff like that. I edited them to start with and now we've a, 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 guy, a guy that does them, thankfully, because it's an extra day's work. You that's know? a hell of a lot of work, yeah. isn't it? Putting yeah. that together. So, so your that's process the type of involvement that. I have. And I'm kind of, I would say I'm as much production as presenting, you know. Well, that comes so. across. It definitely comes across. But in terms of just how you do that then, because I think mm-hmm. we'd all like to we'd all like to go into everything sort of mega prepped, yeah. having thought it all through and the theory versus the reality is quite different for a lot of us. So but you it's clear you are actually managing to do that. So are yeah. you are you sort of forensic? You must the whole yeah. time either be yeah. prepping for something or recording something or prepping yeah. the next thing. I think the only thing I'm good at is reading people, Um, uh, you know, from an early age. So probably why you don't think it's a journalistic skill. I'm very perceptive and whether that's part of just the way my brain's wired a bit wrong. Um, when you I say can, wired I can, a bit wrong, well, what I can do you just, mean? I can just tell an arsehole from like a hundred miles away. Do you okay. know what I mean? Can you come with me I, on I some dates, please? Yeah, I, I am brilliant with my female friends in that front. Well, please I can God, literally, they can tell me, they can show me a picture, they can show oh. me like the social media profile and I'll either be like second day or Ben. And I'm well, never you're really going to be wishing you I'm never, never wrong. Me that. You're, I'm going to be on your WhatsApp <laughs> like a bloody rash now. So, but, what, but no, what, you, yeah, what do you mean by that? That your brain's wired wrongly? Like, are you joking or are you? Is there something? Well, to no, I'm, I am a little antisocial creature who, um, you know, you wouldn't take me many places. Put it that way. Yeah, I do this very mainstream job. You know, uh, it, whether it's mainstream in terms of the time I'm on it, whether it's a daytime show or nighttime show, I do this job that is is so very social. But but it isn't. When you put a mic here and you focus it, then that's right in my wheelhouse, right? It's like we're not just sitting here. There's no, there's no dead air. You know, there, there, this isn't talking like. If we were having a coffee, then now, if, if you and I bumped right. into each other in a studio and I said, "Oh, let's go and have a coffee," would you be finding yeah. this a harder conversation to have just if we were meeting as colleagues or mates rather than well, this? Well, probably, probably not with you, um, because you would necessarily have many straightforward conversations yourself. 
Yeah. Um, so when we met last time we met off air, it was in a corridor at a quiz show. Yes. And uh, it wasn't like our, our conversation went like one to hundred in about three seconds. Yeah. We just covered just about everything quick. So, but in general, yes, I'm a very different creature when there's no mic there. But in terms of the, the why I think it suits me with the interviews is that like I, I'm always looking to be um, like creatively satisfied like to be intrigued so if I'm so so if you if you don't prepare if I I'm forensic you're absolutely right so I'll start with the real basics I just read through where somebody was born but you know when I'm prepping a long form and if you for example if somebody's born in 1968 in North London well it was they, they were born two years after the World Cup was won on their doorstep you know they you you have to they, they you know they were 11 when Elvis died they were nine when Elvis died you know and it's a lot of it's about like don't just read it put people in the place of where they are like where did they grow up what was happening there you know were they growing up in um Notting Hill in 1963 because that's a huge part of our history there and it's not the Notting Hill you know today so a lot of the good stuff you just get from you know placing them as normal kids where they grew up whether it was in the deep south or whether uh, or whether it was in Russia and there's that. So after that, then I would go for the small stuff. I just watch loads and loads of footage. I'll do like seven, eight hours research for a, for a one-hour interview, roughly. Wow. I'd and say it is, give or it's, take. The, it's the unlikely stuff, isn't it? I think people sometimes, what was, who's things. that Australian guy who hadn't, who hadn't um, listened to the day, came over to, to do the interview, but he hadn't listened yeah. to the album. And said that he missed the email. Did and none just, of his production team say on the flight, have you heard this album? No, but, I mean, never mind missing the bloody email. You would be demanding like every bit of it. You wouldn't be waiting for the email. <laughs> no. I mean, but that, I mean, that must make you, that made me bloody irritated as someone who's yeah. a bit of a fanatical kind of perfectionist. But you must have been thinking, and also yeah. the number of people who'd love to have got that interview, right? So he's, I know. what's he thinking on that first class flight? Like, I'm trying to turn up and just watch Shoot the Breeze, talk about a dress. What's he thinking? I'd be, I'd be so afraid of that interview. Because she would fall into the category of like, well, what the hell can you ask her that she hasn't So what would you asked? do this? If you got that, if that had been your gig, what would you have done? How would you approach something like it? It's a good example because well, we, she is, everyone knows everything and her songs yeah. bear her soul, don't they? Well, we were, t- we were talking about this on, on, on air the other, the other night about like what excites you, you know, what, what excites you about Adele? And I've said the same thing excited me when she brought out her first album, 55, you, you know, like 55 excites me about Adele, you know, because I think, She's gone through basically and bared her soul through doing basically what most of us have managed to do. You take away the millions, she's earned. She's just a, you know, she was a scared kid like the rest of us in her teenage years. You know, it's a great magnetic field song called um, like a chicken with its head cut off. But I love magnetic field. Right. And it's a chorus I've always think sums up all of our dating from from when we went our first date at 12 or 14 or 16, right through to about 35. Yeah. Right. And that's it. You know what I mean? You just fall up and down like a chicken with your head cut off. And it's been that. And then this record is like her first album of like she's been through an adult thing. She's been through a divorce. Um, and I like, I can't wait until she's 55. I can't wait until she's just got a complete 100% jazz diva head where she just doesn't <laughs> give a fuck anymore about the production of her albums. What's going to be a hit? What's going to be released as a single? You, you know, like what, what who's going to produce it? And I, yeah, I'd take an album of her and her piano. Well, she hasn't made her greatest album yet. 
Yeah. I'd love to talk to her about that, you know. Have you seen when you covered the Brits? Um, have you because I remember being there when she the, the year, mm. what year it was when she first kind of got came really big mm. and a lot of us hadn't seen her live. We knew she was, but you know, those things where it suddenly is the Brits or whatever, and you're like, shit, that person's really were yeah. you were you involved because in, I know you've present have you presented the Brits? No, I presented the ITV2 coverage. Okay. Um, so I've sat there and sort of um interviewed various people as as they uh sort of come through uh when they presented it and stuff and done a terrible job of it i'm you not, good. Terrible job of it. I'm not good at in and out i'm not good at the two three uh. minutes you know what i mean it's like I just, i'm not good at uh a stop and chat as larry okay. david would say I can't, i'm not chat. a stop cut and chatter chat. no, there's a cut and chat. and chat the stop and chats both of them yeah. both of them not having you know i thought i know you're a Kirby Enthusiasm fan as well but I, I thought the first three series was a documentary do you know what I mean yeah I, I, <laughs> even now did you what did you think about the um the middles when the the, the, the idea of doing the middles at a dinner party and having to have a strong middle at the oh table oh my god I'm not a middle right I'm a middle I, that's it you, are you oh see the problem is can you think you're a middle and be a middle you see, because you think, like yeah. the people who think they're middles, if you, then you watch that episode, eh, eh, you have to be a reluctant middle, I think, to be a true middle. Yeah. If you give me the middle seat, give me the middle seat. That's probably the first sign that you need to be a bit careful here. Yeah. You know, that's probably the most. You um, think you're a middle? Yeah. And did anyone else tell you you're a middle? Well, Has no one's used that language. I'd like, I suppose the only way I'll know <laughs> is if I get. No one's used that language. If I get, because we don't really say. <laughs> What I say? I mean, is that a way of saying no? <laughs> no, but well, nobody's, comedy, nobody's quite used that language. How else would you expect them to well, tell you other here. than in language form? Have you ever, for anyone who's not, not watched Curb, words? <laughs> for anyone who's no not one's actually TV. said it, but I just. <laughs> No, but listen, right, I'm just in my defence, which is always a sure sign I'm defending something indefensible. <laughs> for anybody who hasn't, who hasn't watched it, so this is about at a dinner party, you've got to have the strong conversationalist in the middle. Yeah. So you're saying that you should be very much at the end and, and just sort of add a little bit of sprinkling of something to the middle. I'm saying I think I'm a middle. You're saying, Callie, you're not a middle because you said you were. In comedy, if you're a middle, you're the least good at it. So right. It's, it's all a bit fucked up. Right, I learned that. Because yeah. if anyone that turns up their comedy club after the first act's an idiot. Because yeah. the first act's got another gig, yeah, and the other gig's a headline gig, yeah. So you get two headliners. You're opening act and you're closing headline yeah. act. So that who have also yeah. opened at another club. So the right. only person there for the night. I mean, I do a lot of MCing. You could also say that means yeah. I'm an utter moron because I'm mm. there all night, every night. I'd say. Well, that the MC's great. a bit of a middle, right? You're tying things no, no, no. together. Oh yeah, middle in the dinner party. You're right? middle. You're middle in a dinner party. Yeah, way, I'm then. not going to take middle as a kind of low mm. hierarchy sort in You'd comedy. Be, but you, yeah, I'm not but you're, that. You, 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 what you're doing there is you're 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 selfless. Do you know what I mean? You're you're you, if you're an MC, you're selfless, right? And a good liar, right? Because even if they're shite, you have to say they're good. Oh, and you're chatting. I mean, I like the yeah. I like the emceeing because you're properly. It's the kind yeah. of um, you've got all the you have to do comedy as well. But I love the just diving into things, and I'm mm. always much funnier when I'm not planned. Like me, just doing that is naturally. Ev yeah. Everyone, anyone I ever date, it's like you're really funny when you don't write jokes. It's like thanks, but the jokes <laughs> themselves laboured. But is it? Yeah. So we were connect that together. Someone yeah. who comes to a comedy gig and sits in the front row, actively sits oh. in the front row, knowing that. They're yeah. going to get roundly abused. They're not a middle. No, they are not it's a middle. The they think they're a middle. It's just slightly. It's once a good seat. Once a good seat respects the event, but doesn't want to be the centre of attention. Sitting sort of in the middle. Yeah, they're the middle. That's why I always pick on the. I'm second not a middle. I'm an edge. I'm an edge. Get You're out. An edge. I'm. I'm the like have to go early. 
I would no. get you at a gig. I always go for the people who are like second row back off to the side. The ones who are in the front row, like with their answer ready. Like I'm going to ask you what yeah. to do for a living. You're going to tell me something hilarious. You don't. And if you do go for one of them, you just get away from them as quick as you can. <laughs> They'll be finishing your jokes before the evening. Oh, yes. But I think, um, well, I'm still maintaining I am a middle life and soul. Although I've just realised last night I was out with a bunch of girlfriends and I was very much on the edge. They obviously didn't think I right. was the middle. I don't think you can declare yourself the middle. I think that's what I got from that episode of Curb is that like you, you're you're anointed. You don't, yeah. you don't, you, 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 there's no coup here. Like you, there's no coup. You, you, yeah. you, there's no dictatorship. You can't go, I'm the middle, somebody else. So I'm not saying that you're, now? I'm not saying you aren't the middle. But yeah. I'm saying that you're wrongfully claiming to you're be like one. back off and let other people let decide. other people let me decide when when you know when you oh hey, Callie's a middle yeah but I think somebody yeah, else you never go to out decide. for dinner so you're never going to see me as a middle because you'll be sitting at home no exactly things for your next midnight well, meets that's exactly it is there um and you were saying you can be you can be um personal well you can be personal mm. while still being private yeah and and so you're offering that as a kind of dignified way for your interviewee to be allowed to be so you're not mm. sort of scurrying around in the gutter for gossip yeah. so you want to get something of substance no one's heard yeah. before but you don't want scurrilous stuff that's going to bite them in the mm-hmm. ass when it comes out mm-hmm. so i guess people also can implicitly feel that right they kind of know that you can yeah. you can sense it but then you, yeah what we're going to say that comes from when i because my first radio job was radio one right so up until then all i'd done until that stage was put on local gigs and write so I was a little Northern Irish kid, nothing, nothing to do with media and uh, nothing to do with TV and radio. And then bang, first first show was Radio 1. So I was exposed quite quickly because I didn't have any like building up or anyone telling me what the industry was like. So I just thought everyone was great. And then you learn, right? You do. I'm not going to say what shows, but you do some shows, you do a bit of TV and you realize it's quite cutthroat. And you 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 trust people you shouldn't trust. And then something's in the paper about you or whatever. So I made a decision quite a long time ago not to read anyone's private life because my view is this Callie if I don't if I read other people's oh that's funny look what's happened with you know uh oh what's Graham Norton doing or you know whoever like you know oh there's a thing in the paper about um you, you, you know I, I don't know Amanda Holden or whatever that I'm I'm part of the problem so don't complain if they're doing it about me because I'm buying it and I'm clicking on it so I don't you know, if I will turn a page and not read something and I will not click on something about someone's private life, gets you into hell a lot of trouble. Because mm, you, you can be talking to someone and you'd be like, how's life? And they're like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, well, what? I, I've been in the front of the Daily Mirror for the last, well, I don't know. Because yeah. I, don't, I don't read the, that shit. I don't care. So like, I don't know about your private life, for example. I can't so, believe like, when Adele came up, you didn't mention my affair with her. For two years. I, was really, I was like, he's been so sweet not to right, mention it. I don't know whether you're married, divorced. I don't know whether you've got a famous boyfriend or girlfriend. Like, I genuinely don't know that. Like, I know what you do for a living. And I know who you are as a person because you've now been on my radio show four or five times. And we're organically growing a friendship. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know whether you're, unless you've mentioned it to me as your information, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of have that as a, as a, as a policy, you know. And that's what I mean about we can be personal without being private. I mm-hmm. don't need to dispel. So, so I, I think I'm on a decent moral ground and with it because I'm, I'm not too much of a hypocrite. And I, when I do my midnight meets, for example, which is what I do now, but before it was, you know, at home or before it was a your weekly interview on, um, in the company of which I did for Talk Sport mm-hmm. back 
to do an interviews and really want when they're pre-recorded i will always say to the person i'm interviewing you don't answer anything you don't want to answer mm-hmm. and this is this is my style and this is how i'm going to do the interview mm-hmm. and i am going to mention that marriage but i'm not mentioning it for any information i'm mentioning it because i want to talk about this thing so and you'll I'll say that before war- you go yes i'll forewarn them yeah. about anything that touches yeah. in their private life but or, or if it's a bit sometimes interviews are sometimes they're a bit awkward before you start them some people are like hey other people aren't so you, you gotta be careful about not saying yeah. too much but i'll say anything you don't want to talk about just move on and or if you talk about it and you don't like it tell me and i'll cut it out yeah. and that's happened a few times where after the interview someone's went you know what I shouldn't have said that. Has anyone wanted to cut the whole cut thing? I had that the other day. Someone did an amazing no. one of these. And then afterwards she said, it was really good. And actually, I really don't think it would have made her look bad. But she was like, I was far too honest. You'd got me on a real day. My guard was <sighs> down. And the way you interview gets people to say stuff. And I was thinking, but it was lovely. And she, yeah. and I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> no, you had to bend the whole thing. I had to bend the whole thing. I think I will manage to get her back. Um, mm. I, in fact, I'm sure I will. But I'm just, you know, licking my wounds. Yeah, so but how bad an any... interview that's going to be. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> She's going to give you the option. <laughs> Opposite of the great one, yeah. I would not. I'd be like, where do you buy your toilet paper? And that'll be it. Do you want people's secrets? Like, because I don't, ge- I genuinely do. I, I, I never want anybody's secrets. You don't right? want to be the custodian of a secret. Oh, God, no, don't tell me. Like, I don't want to know. Like, the, the, one of the worst things that, and, and a great thing, but you know, Ronnie Wood from the Rolling Stones, I right? Do. He's a big snooker fan and he's really good friends with Jimmy White who I love and have worked with for years. So you're and, kind of married to Ronnie Wood by proxy, aren't you? Because right, yes, exactly, you must right. see him more than well, you no. see your wife, don't you, so, Jimmy White? Exactly. It, it, Jimmy's amazing, right? You can be locked in a room with Jimmy for three weeks and he's... he's and you are locked in a room never with argue. him for three yeah. weeks. Well, I, I quit it recently. I just kind of thought, you know, you have the thing, I've done this for t- 10 years and if you don't stop doing something, you'll never get offered anything else. So I stopped doing it. But it was a great time and Ronnie Wood would turn up even when we were covering like, you know, random events and we were doing the coverage from like some industrial estate, he he would turn up and just sit with us and watch the the, the snooker. He's obsessed. He loves it. Very weird to be sitting in a room and, there, and then comes a rolling stone with his dog and four cans of Red Bull and sits and wants eight hours of snooker with you. Lovely guy, right? Lovely guy. One night he comes down to the snooker with his, with his partner, his dog, Jimmy, and, and after it, we all go for a a, a drink. Um, and uh, after the snooker, we go for a drink in this hotel in like Richmond. And he goes, "Don't tell anyone, but uh, we're we're having twins. We're having kids." I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you told." And like, and it was the worst moment at the table because I'm like, "Why? Why would you? T- I don't know you well enough. You know, you're at the table with your best friend, your family, and Ronnie O'Sullivan and me." You wait, I go to the toilet before you break that shit out. Yeah. Like, and also, you like, could be a real wanker. Oh. You could have been straight on the phone to the tabloids where right. you were different. But the worst thing was, it was in two days later, it was on the front page of a newspaper. And, uh, you know, so I, I was just like, honestly, that's just what I talk about being a little weirdo. I was just sweating for days going, well, why would he tell me? Why would he tell I don't want to know these things. No, I could go a lifetime without telling anyone, but uh, I don't share secrets. And I'm not a gossiper either, but I hated it. It was almost a relief because it was on the front of a certain newspaper that I would never have leaked the story. Right. To. So you were so like, that was, a, that was the best was thing. Yeah, I was, I knew, I was like, you're never going to think it was me because I never would. Namaste, motherfuckers. I did um, one of these with Stephen K. Amos recently, yes. and he's notoriously doesn't talk about his personal life. And he said to mm. me on, on the podcast, I'm not talking about anything personal. 
And it was one of the most personal ones I've ever done. And he talked about his twin sister dying. He talked about some incredibly mm. moving, lovely, lovely stuff. But it was so it wasn't secrets. I didn't want to get some dirty, scurrilous yeah. secret. And he's had some shit leveled at him in the tabloids. I wasn't interested in that. Mm. But I did find it really quite moving because I know him quite well. And he'd never spoken to me like that. And I don't think he yeah. would have spoken to me like that in a you know, I've had drinks with them after gigs and stuff. So that was really lovely. And stories that come out about mental health, bereavement, mm. people who've lost babies, people who, everyone's got a story, right? When I do yeah. motivational speaking, which is kind of how I make a living and I'm up there telling my story, which is really not so fascinating at all. And I always say, you know, every person in this room, if any one of you was paid to just stand up here and tell us your actual story, mm-hmm. we'd be mesmerized. So yeah. what I do love hearing is a real story that might be I suppose I quite like the unguarded person of someone but mm. not in any way to make them feel less I hope they come away yeah. feeling more no that's very true and and uh, it's interesting when you do both things so when you when you're the interviewer and sometimes you're the interviewee is you know so for example I think I went my whole life without anybody ever in an interview going to me what was your politics or religion growing up now that's bizarre right if you think about it it's because I'm the guy from East Belfast and you can you can go well we know where you're from and that whole area is loyalist and protestant so you must be that never been that no one's ever asked the question ever no one's ever went or no one's ever went well I'm an atheist I've been an atheist from the age of like 14 never forced into religion in my life never ever ever had that in my family I remember we just didn't. We just didn't have. We went to church at Christmas out of some form of guilt, but there was no religion in my family. An atheist, but, that, but not a humanist. Right, but everyone assumes that because you're from Northern Ireland, that you know you have to be one side or the other. So it's funny, and and I think because do you think people don't want to ask as well. Do you think the whole like people get really funny about like yeah. should I call it Northern Ireland? And is it should I say the troubles? Yeah. I think people get also get very nervous if you're not part. You know, when I've done the blame game, you're like yeah. you just want to get your shit right. Yeah. Do you think people are a bit nervous to know what Maybe. to say? But I think it's more self-inflicted because I, I was um I remember uh, going to an award show and um I was presenting an award show and it was a lovely night. It was for young journalists and stuff like that. And it was brilliant and really good. And there was two hours news journalists and we just got on really well. So we were all drinking and we had a night out and it was about three in the morning. And they said to me, you're not like we thought you would be or something worse to those effects. And I said, well, what did you expect? And I'm like, well, you know, you're all, you're very like, you know, Northern Ireland, the football team, the stuff that you do. And I was like, well, that's sport. That's nothing to do with anything else. And it's interesting. They got, they, they were, they sort of were like, well, tell us about how you can have a sense him. Well, well I don't really have religion. It's not really big in our family, you know, et cetera. So what's your politics? Well, I'm pretty. And, and it was really, it's really interesting. Sometimes, I don't know, the obvious things, you know, but at the point of me, I'm rambling absolute shite here. But the point of making is, it's it's interesting when you're the interviewer and the interviewee. You know, like like most people go their whole lives only being interviewed, only doing interviews, don't they? Yeah, you I learn suppose. a lot more. You yeah. learn a lot more being the interviewer. I think I, I yeah. definitely found when I when the lockdown first started, I used to work as an executive coach among other things. And when I lost all my work, my live work, I started doing. I did a hundred one-off, one-hour pro bono <sighs> coaching sessions with people as a sort of not exactly yeah. a social experiment. I would hoped I was helping people who'd lost their jobs, I should say. So people yeah. in the creative industries primarily who haven't got any work. 
And I got so much out of doing that. It was so mm. interesting and being able to, even though you don't speak very much in a coaching session, it's not like an interview. You're very much just letting them follow in their lead, really, um, mm. which you are to a degree interviewing someone like this, but you're structuring it much less. You don't need a narrative yeah. arc in a coaching yeah. session. But what you, what I learned and the help that that was for me, I, I felt like I'd had 100 hours of like helpful yeah. <laughs> psychiatric support. During a oh, yeah, totally. I mean, every time you're hearing someone's story and you're they're telling this story and you're sort of the custodian of that you know of that chat you're of course you're learning and you're seeing reflections and you're you know of course it's a great thing to be that person who's at the center of the conversation also it struck me when we were talking you said our conversation went from naught to 60 um in the corridors at elstree and it, and, and we were talking about spiking drinks being spiked and i said you yep. know i want to come on your show and talk about it by the way, I never have since, but it was only a week or two ago. But yeah. you instantly, so I felt very opinionated about it for sort of personal reasons, stuff that had just happened. But you instantly, on that topic, you had mm. you had it from five different angles. And I, oh. I know that's because you've done it on air, but it strikes me when I, which is why I'm so interested in your sort of forensic approach to everything, because you've also got to carry around all this stuff. So you've got the multiple viewpoints, you're also holding mm. the listener in yeah. mind. And you've got all this massive amounts of knowledge. So the bit you do reveal looks really effortless and you're just like putting it out there like you don't know so much, but we all know there's so much in the tank. So how do you, that, that's a hell of a, I mean, that, I guess what I'm asking is where is the room for anything? Because if that's what I was doing professionally, I don't think there'd be any room for me to ever watch telly, kiss anyone or stroke a cat. Oh, listen, first of all, I wouldn't do two of those three things, um, but uh, it's more. Which it's, one? It's more of the cat, definitely. I isn't know that. that. You know that. I'll Here leave the other again. two in there. Yeah. But you, you go to. Um, it's it's interesting because I wouldn't have that forensic political knowledge that say a Stephen Nolan has right. or a Nikki Campbell has, mainly because I don't really want it. Because I'm not going to have those conversations. Most of the stuff we do in our show is about real people. I always say we don't do the news in our show. We do conversations about the news. Yes, and I don't ever want to be part of the chatter and classes. I want I want conversation with a point. So when you get to the end of it, I want it to be like, well, where, where did we did something just happen that moved the dial at all? Even if it's only the smallest amount. Did like 20 people listening to my show tonight out of the whatever it is listens at my time? I don't know. I think it's like 300,000 or 400,000 or whatever. Did did 5,000 of them change their view on spiking tonight? Did they realize that spiking is the intent to rape? By and large, is the intent to rape. And that's what it should be called. Or, or, you know, So a lot of my issues that, that I do are probably more on a moral compass than an intellectual compass. And then I, then I would have knowledge of that. But I think it comes more from... I suppose my morality than it does from you know me being able to run through the shadow cabinet and and where the constituencies no are. Wants to listen to that. Right, I don't. I don't have that. You That's know. bad radio. <laughs> and with the um and in terms of those things, so you, because obviously mm. working for the BBC, I all I, I I was the only I worked for a bit for a joint venture of the mm. BBC. So I worked for UK TV for eighteen months, and even then I found the bureaucracy of the BBC incredibly difficult, mm. and I barely had to interface with them. I'm not asking you to slag off um the hand that that, that feeds you, but in terms of opinions, so you are. I've never had <laughs> if you get. <laughs> Sum my career up in a nutshell. It is slagging <laughs> off the hand that feeds me. That's, uh, that's literally that might be on my tombstone. Yeah. Here lies Colin Murray. He would have been a multi-millionaire if he didn't keep fucking leaving places. 
<laughs> to be fair, when you like when you left Talksport because of yeah. the news core thing, I think mm. it was fair to be uh, taking a view. Uh, yeah. So if that's yeah. one of the examples of that, I'd say that would get you um some hero. Yeah. Kind well, of let me slag the BBC. No, I, but what so it you're is not for allowed me. to have the, But the opinion thing is really interesting. So you do your show absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 the opinions come out loud and clear, but you're not allowed to go on and say. I this dis- is what I, I do. I, I kind of disagree. I I, for, I don't disagree. I just have a different uh, uh, different opinion. We, there's no such thing there's no you're not there's no such thing as being unbiased on racism right yeah there's no there's no two views on a racist this is true no different that there's no two views on the statistics that show that female violence violence towards women and harassment of women in, in britain is there in black and white to read the figures that's what it is. It's happening. This is the day to day. You know, these are the conviction rates which are going down for sexual assault, for sexual violence, for rape. You don't have to be that. That, that is a pan. That is an epidemic. Like that is that is a shameful epidemic. That there's no, there's no objectivity or balance needed in these issues. You so know, you can have an opinion in that regard, and yet, but again, yes. it's the moral. So your morality is leading the way, rather than you saying. But but I don't think the BBC needs to be. I don't think the BBC has ever claimed, and from what I get from conversations I have about this, and you go into these meetings about them where they say to you, "Right, you're doing a show that has news in it." Now, I've never once felt that the BBC has said to me that I need to provide a voice for for you know anti Semites or Islamophobes or. I've never felt that was the balance I was being asked to draw. The balance is like last night, I'm covering this social care bill that's going through and the amendment is providing the the, the two sides. The government say, this is why this amendment makes sense. And the opposition say, and those who, those who rebelled against it last night, they say this and here are the people to, to talk about it. That's balance and that's important. And I'll always have that. So when you work in those kind of hours, then does that, how is that on your mental health then when you're sort of swimming against the tide of what the rest of the world's doing? Because you're um, like a sort of even later night comedian. I'm usually home by midnight. Yeah, it suits me in terms of my personality. So I'm like, I'm never in rush hour traffic. I can choose when I leave, I go home in the dark. Uh, so it allows me that kind of existence. And Honestly, like the, the sometimes to be honest with you, sometimes you're on air, especially I, I'll tell you how someone up in the story. We 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 were doing a, a conversation on air and it was a particularly horrific interview with somebody in terms of um it was it was about uh girls being killed in Afghanistan. And it was a really hard interview to listen to. Really, really hard. And one of those ones, let's even present it. You're like, and I do believe you have you have a responsibility to keep it together. I know it sounds a bit old school, but I do I do try and sort of I, I won't stop my emotions. I think a lot of time on our people can hear I am getting affected by what I'm talking about, but I don't want to cry. You know, there's kind of a li- a, a line, I think, you know. Do you cry trying- afterwards then? Um you can sometimes, yeah. You can just go home and a story just sticks in your head, and you just mm-hmm. or you like we had a, a a journalist on a young journalist on who chose to stay in, in Kabul, and I just going home and I was going out of my head, going like, why are you staying? Like this is you need to get out, you know. And then I, I remember I made contact with her. I was like, just off air, you know. If there's if anything, you know, we're here. The, the responsibility we're goes here. We're beyond. We're not going over the there, but we're here. Yeah, yeah. Um. So it's not, but the. Uh, on air uh, we did this particular thing and it was really heavy listening and we got like two texts and we'd been talking about something daft half an hour earlier and we did 40,000 yeah. texts you know what I mean? yeah. 
And I just spoke out loud to my audience and I said, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not criticizing. I just want to know why yeah. you texted in for that and not this. I just want to know why I didn't get to, oh, do you not want me to talk about this? And that's beautiful. You couldn't do that during the day, yeah. but you can do that with your audience that are there because they're working the night shift. They're on a long drive and you got personal yeah. or they can't sleep or they're on their sofa with a glass of wine or a cup of tea. And, and we just did this deluge of text from people that were like, it's not that. We don't know what to say. Yes, I thought that might be what it was. Yeah, It's mortifying to hear yeah, yeah. that we are at least partly responsible for that. Yes. It is mortifying to hear that I do not have the moral compass that made that an issue until it's you talked about it. It's a very inconvenient truth. And it was beautiful. It was yeah. beautiful and it was a beautiful. And I think I, I, I always say my audience are on the same level as me. We are on the same. We're at the same t- table i may blether a bit too much but you're at the table and i would gladly do a show that was led only by listeners questions and only by listeners texting in so that's what i work working tirelessly at the moment to build you know with this with a show because well, i have goes, that obsessiveness you know whatever i do i need and it, to it be. goes full circle to what i said yeah. which it is interesting when you talk to people about people you're interviewing how many people had a massive affection for you as if they were your mate kind of thing through your radio well show. it's real you know the only problem is they wouldn't want to really be my mate you well, know, they wouldn't want to bring me along you know, to like, right, but, right, but wouldn't that be the person gets him in trouble? It's not but, a middle. No, it's, it is. I'm not a middle. No, I'm not a middle. That's the thing. I know, but don't middle. besmirch my Oh middle. my God, I might be a middle. That's yeah. why. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a wannabe middle, yeah, which is the saddest place at the dinner party. Do you not think you have to mean it? Like, I've always said this about an audience, right? They know when you're full of shit. Oh, that is true. As a comedian, that's the first thing you learn. If you're bullshit and they smell it and you're fucked. Yeah. They, and they do. They just do. They've because, got an incredible you know, sense yeah. of it. And, and I'm sure uh, listeners are the same. If they sent, or if they sense you're nervous, but you're not driving the train, you're fucked. Yes, yes. You've not got a minute. And if you drop the ball for a minute, you're yeah. fucked. Yeah, We're all no that. Grace. We're all that. And I'm the same in the armchair. And and I would say, you know, like say you watch, so he's strictly on or whatever, right? Quite quickly, the audience go, real, real, yeah. full of shit. Yeah. So quickly. Really I, quickly. I don't think you can fool an audience. You, you know, can't fool. I wish you could. I've been trying to. But yeah. it's, you know, you do, and, and that real, that vulnerability, it's funny you said about not, not crying. I mean, as a comedian, also, it's not great to cry. But you sort of need to have gone pretty vulnerable with a subject. Yeah. Like, if you're going to make something funny, some of the stuff I talk about on stage is really dark. And I have to have really worked out my position with it in yes. order for the audience to go with me on it. Because yeah. if I look like I was being hacked or punching down, that I wouldn't survive the 20 minutes. Right. So you, you have to dig pretty bloody deep to then yeah. get to the point where audience will get close to you. Yeah. And I don't know. It's I find it interesting. So my thing is like, I don't want people arguing with each other. Right. I think it's old radio. I don't think it fixes anything. I don't so care. So you'll have a humorous debate yeah. like this house believes, well, no, but you wouldn't no, want to. No, actual... it's not that. You know, so like our, our Tuesday hour from 11 to 12 is really quite heavy. It's heavy every week. It's big conversations, but that's what they are. I don't want someone to come on and tell me something hasn't happened and that's happening. I don't want someone to come on and be entrenched in a view yeah. and have somebody else who's in the complete opposite trench arguing with her i don't what's the point yeah. like it gets me a little clip on twitter that people watch but like it, Kilroy I, I used to be do you remember i've done a terrible job right yeah. i've yeah. done it yeah exactly i've done a terrible job that's the easiest thing you can do i want i want my guests to teach me like, yes i don't want to clever to their audience and your oh god yeah. yeah i love asking a stupid question you know i love yeah. asking a question where the person interviewing goes no you couldn't be any more wrong yeah because they're going to tell me what's right you know yes. So, you know, do you get that money? In, uh, no, that's the complete opposite to that. Yeah. Okay, and brilliant. The questions you know? other people wouldn't want to ask because they might look like a tip. Yeah. They're like, I'm titting up for this. I'm titting right up. Do you worry at all about getting cancelled? 
given the no. world we live in. No, not really. Like, if I did, it would be for, I don't know what it would be for, do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't even have social media, so I'm an anti-social, social person. So, like, as I said, when there's a mic, it's all right. But, I, I mean, I got social media the day that Wigan, under real pressure, you know, I had no social media when I fell into doing stuff like Match of the Day too. No social media of any type when I was at Radio 1. So, it was way after. It was like... Um, Wigan won the FA Cup. My first tweet ever was "fuck" because they right. beat Man City in the FA nice. Cup. Nice. So I've always the full word count. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm not very like I, I open up my Twitter right. I tried Instagram for like a day. It's not for me. I watch mm-hmm. pictures of me. So it was like six pictures on it. I, I open up my Twitter all the time and think that would be good to say. And then I'm like, I don't want to fucking tell anyone. Yeah. I don't want. I don't value my view enough. You know, like when people are weighing in on Adele's audience with. But also, or, have you got the time? Like, if like, you're if I don't have anything good to Twitter. say, I'm not going to say it, right? Yeah. I'm the same as that. I can sit on a sofa and watch Strictly or whatever and be like, dickhead. You know, or, you know, I have the same armchair nonsense that everybody else has. I just don't need to, I don't message and look at what I think. Well, I just, that, I don't have that gene, like, I think to do it was, that. I had like Lee Mack, I think it was, talking about Twitter and saying, saying that it's like, you know, if he's complaining about trolls, but he's on there, it's like saying to his wife, wife, people come and banged on the door and telling me they hate me and her going, well, why'd you give them the bloody door number? Why'd you give them the uh, yeah. number in the first place? And, yeah. And there is that thing. If We've you don't of, need it, would you leave it? If what if I didn't I don't yeah it's really interesting I've got a very unhealthy relationship no I haven't got an unhealthy relationship with social media mm. insofar as I get where it's at and I'm very glad I've got into being on screen and on air later in life when I feel I've got I've learned mm. a few things I use social media completely for my career and it massively helps so I get a lot of my corporate yeah. bookings through perception yeah. I mean it's real as well but I make damn sure that if people know I'm doing something they know but it's it's not a healthy thing to be on it as much but it does no. get me work so I don't it's know got- it's got, um, it's so layered. Like I always say this argument of, well, yeah, but social media is so good to provide a voice with people who need anonymity. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not why you're using it. That's not your good. I'm asking yeah. you, how does it benefit you? Yeah. I would say doing a late night radio show, it's great. Cause I, I literally know my, like, I literally know like my 500, like core listeners every night by yeah. name. Yeah. Like I can actually run down and know who they are. You know, and then I also can sort of, uh, you know, just just run a really boutique radio show. And and my my social media is all sweetness and light, really. Yeah. Rarely does it go to a bad place because I don't use it that way. I keep it pretty Right, it's fine. And I don't want to get into things that I don't have no desire to get into a debate where I know half the people doing it don't even think what they're thinking. They just want to spat. And I haven't got the time and energy to be spatting with people I don't know in public. I don't have no desire to do it. I'm exactly the same. So you use it in that way. But I do feel like the day I stopped doing this, whenever it is, I I stopped doing a a public facing job. I probably would close it down for the basis that I have nothing to say. Yeah. I don't value my opinion enough to feel like I would keep it open. I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I do don't, I don't want to tell anyone anything. I want to have good conversations. Yes. I want to genuinely be part of a solution of shit that we have in this world at the moment. And, and that's, what's great about speech radio. And that like, we do 10 hours of radio a week included in that is this house Belize, which is the debate. It's not to do with that. You did cats and dogs. Someone else did like this week's uh, people, you know, craft beers, overpriced, overrated and over discussed. It's just, it, it's actually about the art of debate, right? Yeah. We also do a midnight mixtape, which is just coming together as a community and picking 12 tracks. Yeah. Because at that time of night, you got to think yeah, about no, why people thing. are up. Yeah. I just want to come together and it's all feel good when we go to bed. But then we do a really big news hour on a Tuesday and we start every show with 20 minutes of news conversation, half an hour news conversation. So it's got different things throughout. It's got different layers throughout it. And I just want all of it to count. 
You know what I mean? That's one all of it to count for different reasons. And when yeah. people mess me and go, well, it used to just be politics and people would talk, po- I'd be like, yeah, what did you get out? What, what did that, how did that help? Yeah. I put my R up against three R's of two politicians talking yeah. shit yeah. to each other yeah. and not agreeing in anything yeah. or two, two and people get that as from well. two different newspapers. That, right? that it's easy. Everywhere. Oh, yeah. I could, I could turn up at nine o'clock at night if I did a show like that. Yeah. I just turn up at nine o'clock at night. I wouldn't have to yeah. do anything other than what's the news. Yeah, absolutely. Easiest thing ever. Easiest thing ever. But that ties in really what you're saying about social media and your question I never answered, which is the BBC. Yeah. Which we joked about. Go ahead. Say, um, it's what it is for me, right? It's a massive, 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 big cruise liner. And especially if you're, you're always looking to push and change and do things a bit different, which is I've always just had that head of like being a bit of a disruptor, I suppose, just by nature. And I'm annoying to my employers. I always have been. But I also know at the risk of sounding arrogant, like the show I'm doing now at night, we're the second highest audience rating. Yeah, they need you. Yeah, so for those who listen to my show it, across the BBC, now the next ratings, we could be the lowest across the BBC, but with the second highest, Lauren Laverne was above our show. But that's it. Like mm-hmm. across all of the BBC, one, two, three, four, five, we were the second mm-hmm. most appreciated show amongst our audience. That fills my heart. 92% of the people that listen like it. Mm-hmm. So that's that's brilliant. But I but it's a look, so I find a lifeboat on the cruise liner here. Mm-hmm. That's how I describe the BBC. And I'm not criticizing the cruise liner, but it's big, right? It's big, 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 and it's important and it slowly turns, right? Um but it's full of these lifeboats where you can do the most amazing things and little cabins point, you can find they can just that you cut couldn't the do anywhere else. And the lifeboats in the sea. I right. know that's how lifeboats work. They're not right. meant to be right. on the cruise Exactly forever. that. But I'd rather be in the lifeboat. They're a than, temporary fixture. I'd, I'd rather be in the lifeboat than steering the ship. And I have to say, this is really important that often BBC, I find when people talk about it, it comes across just by, by inclination, not what's the word, intimation, inclination, whatever that word is, that it's anti commercial radio. Mm-hmm. When I went in commercial radio, the three years I had in commercial radio, least anybody's ever cared about radar figures and how many people were listening. Mm-hmm. My my boss at TalkSport, the wireless group, which while I left it, I loved that job, mm-hmm. right? Never, ever, ever, ever cared about the radar figures. Now, the show did very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the highest ever ratings they'd ever had in that slot since mm-hmm. they started the station. But that was because they said, just do a good bloody show every mm. day. And i that's what I try and do. So some of them are shit. Some of them are great. Some of them are good. But like today, you know, it's we're talking, we're recording this at about seven at night. Mm-hmm. So I've been working from about two o'clock-ish on the show. Mm-hmm. And I'll finish at one, mm-hmm. right? Might be a good show, might be a bad show. Might have 100,000 people listening, might have 10,000. I don't know. But you just do the job. Mm-hmm. You do the job with it. And you never, ever, ever like take for granted the privilege of doing it you know no, that's I agree. I and the passion and if you have the passion for doing i feel like that doing this podcast i'm like i i get good listeners it's a new yeah. podcast but i absolutely bloody love it so i'm like and i and also it's always out there right i love right. the fact that you create something yeah there's conversations i have i'm like i hope my kids will hear this one day um, yes because it's stuff they might like to know about me yeah. but they certainly don't give a shit about listening at the moment they're, they're two different things as well and it's funny radio's this old-fashioned form of, of medium that survived no matter what's happened and it survived for a reason it's live 
and it's interactive and it's mm-hmm. conversation and it's company and it's community and it's all of those things I talk about at night. It always and it's intimate. Been. I think the intimacy right. of radio of is not right. to be underestimated. Yeah. That I mean, it really is intimate. You literally take it to bed with you. Yeah. It's a voice you have with you. You people. That's why people have that response to you. I think. Hundred percent. Namaste, motherfuckers. So, uh, trying to make you a hippie for a moment. Uh, yes. What would you pick as your namaste motherfucking yeah. well, life-changing moment? This gets to my private, personal thing. So there's 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 seismic ones that I probably will never talk about because I'm never going to write an autobiography or anything like that. Why would I? But I'm, um, you know, they've properly changed my life for the worst. But if I stick to my career, oh God, yeah. Yeah. Seismic things, but they just, that's it. Everyone has them. This but, is just really hard. This is like, telling, <laughs> this is like showing me the apps in the bloody Do, do you know what's movie. funny though? Cause I trust you. If we're ever sitting having a drink, I tell you everything, knowing that I could trust you. Yeah, you could definitely trust me. I'm just sad you're not trusting my listeners, but that's okay. Um, but uh, on this on the career front, there's a really obvious one for me that seismic, you know, namaste moment, which was so England are playing Brazil in the World Cup that was in Korea and Japan 2002. I'm working at the time as like putting on gigs for unsigned bands, basically local clubs, running clubs. I have one called Stereotype with a girl who was saying Vanessa and a few other things. Um, putting on unsigned bands like uh, Turn, who were brilliant, Snow Patrol at the time, who were signed, but on a very small mm-hmm. label. Really good times, looking back on it. DJing and writing about music. That's basically what I did. You were a man in your 20s then, yeah? I was in my early 20s, yeah. 20s, yeah. And I'd started a music magazine with a guy called Paul McNamee, and we both hadn't mm-hmm. a clue what we were doing. We're in our early 20s. He went on to do brilliant things. He's now, he's current editor of The Big Issue. Um, and I had a great time at the NME, but the work he's done as editor of The Big Issue is fantastic. He's such a good journalist brilliant guy um and anyway so so i'm pulling these all-nighters living with my mate scott um and you know bleary eyed getting a little bit of sleep and it was when uh ronald danio lobs lobbed david seaman to win two two one brazil beat england and it was round about that that game was in the morning it was somewhere in that haze of being up for three days solid watching football and um doing whatever then i realized that i was meant to go down for some radio thing that I'd not wanted to do. And the first time they'd done it for whatever it was, I hadn't went to the audition. And this was the time I promised them to go. And my mate Scott goes, just go. I said, I've been up for like 36 hours. We literally been drinking all night. And he's like, just go down. It's just the BBC. I lived like literally in the court of Lisbon. Just go down. So I went down. I can't even remember really being there. And that was for the session in Northern Ireland for Radio 1. And that's that's how I ended up with the first radio show. Wow. It was just after or just before I can't remember Ronald Daniel Lobb Seaman. I, I I that's when I did that and got that job. And then I want to know, were you still off your tits life. at that point? Did your Namaste motherfucking moment happen under the influence? I don't have much recollection of what happened in that, Take that uh, as a yes. particular thing. Cause I would just sit and drink all night. I was a I was a blitzer. Do you drink now or have you stopped drinking? Well, I've never been an alcoholic. I've, there's alcoholism in my family, so I've seen it. You know, so yeah. I'm not. I'm not depending on it. My addiction, cigarettes, yeah. which I've now touch all sorts of wood, seem to just about. You've seen me on the vape here, vaping, vaping, yeah. but that's down to zero milligram, and I was being okay. for, for the first time. So I think I'm getting there. But that's my. That's my thing. Like, I wish, I wish smoking was healthy. I was just continued. I know. Do. I used to love smoke. I think a lot of us did. Also, all of us that were working in the kind of yeah. music business in the yeah. 80s and not, well, I guess you wouldn't have been in the 80s, but the 90s. A lot yeah. of smoke, a lot of things went on there which weren't good for us. And <laughs> hey, je ne regret rien. Um, but yeah, I, um, I uh, haven't drank in about 15 months just to see if I could. And, and uh, I'm not missing it. 
No. So, but I'm becoming a bit dull, like, you You're know. You're a social pariah. No I barely drink. I no put in a good drinking. account of myself when I did. And I don't know people. Honestly, as soon as you just have one drink, I feel like if you don't drink, they think you're an alcoholic and that's great. But I mean, it's not great to be one, but it's great if they think that. But as soon as you have one, they're like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Do you know, I haven't proved that yet, but I'm absolutely going to do that. Oh, yeah, this just is, go quietly. I, I don't drink do not anymore. Drink? I don't drink anymore. Not anymore. Oh, then you get just full twitch. respect. Yeah. And then you get an extra great. bread roll and olive and a lot of respect from people. Brilliant. For that, so. And then you could test the the people who you were with. You could test the character of those people. Yeah. Because if you if they are under the if they're under the belief that you have a, a serious illness, and then you go, I'll just have one. Get me. You could literally just go, get me a double whiskey, yeah. and see which one of that group goes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Or which one goes? Yeah. That's not a good person. That sorts the men from the boys. Right. What's, what's your favourite joke? Oh, God. It's a really bad joke. i got to tell you, it's a really bad joke. But I love it so much. But nobody really likes it. I've just got to tell you that nobody really likes it. I'm and it takes a while. Position. So it's... Oh. You haven't even hit the fucking turbulence yet of this joke. Your brace position is like three minutes away, okay. right? So this guy splits up from his wife and he's at home. And he's just loneliness is just creeping from every wall. And, you know, he's just one of these men whose wife did everything for him. And he just he just can't function. And he decides, I'm going to go to the pet shop. I'm going to get myself a dog because they said dogs are man's best friend. So anyway, he goes to the, the, the pet shop. He says, have you got any dogs? He says, I don't have any dogs. He says, right, well, well, have you got a cat? A cat would do it. He says, I don't have any cat. He said, I said, what have you got? And he goes, well, I've got a, a parrot. As in not er, as in a park can't say that word. Um, and I've got a talking millipede. And he says, well, what, what, what do you mean a talking? There's no such thing. And he says, trust me, talking millipede. Brilliant they are. Fantastic. He says, you know, have a fucking talking millipede. Just give me the, just give me the, uh, just give me the, 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 the bird. He said, I'll make you a deal. Take, take it away with you. Right. Bring it back in a week. If it, if it doesn't, if it's not amazing, if not, just come and give me the hundred quid. Hundred quid. He's at hundred quid. Trust me. So anyway, he said, "All right." He's desperate. This guy. So he takes this this millipede in his fucking cage thing, and he brings it back home. He sets it down the table, and he's on his own. He's out loud. He says, "I can't believe, I can't believe I fell for this." And the millipede goes, "Fell for what?" He goes, "Oh my god, you talk." He says, yeah, talk. He says, "I can do anything that your wife updated apart from sex, but everything else." He says, "Well, what do you mean?" He says, "Well, tell me something that he says." Well, I've lost the remote control. I can't find it anywhere. I would fall asleep. My wife would always put it in the same place. Millipede crawls out of the cage, down the back of the sofa, pushes up the control straight. Well, it's down the back of the sofa. Of course it is. There it is. He's like, that's amazing. He says, look, could you, like the kitchen's a mess. Like, is there anything you can say? You can tell us jokes from the 80s, by the way, right? <laughs> Things that are like, now you're like, really? The wife did all the cleaning, but it's an 80s joke. Just that roll I'm with it. you. I'm still in right. the plane. Right, okay. I haven't pulled the ripcord. You can't do dishes. He's like, oh no, I can do under dishes i've got this great thing i hold my breath and go under the water i can do the dishes faster than any human being so off he goes into the kitchen and 20 minutes later come in and he goes in and he says my god you've done all that the millipede says not a problem done it. the kitchen's spotless and he says what about can you do the shopping and the millipede says well i can but it takes people a while to get used to me because they're not used to millipede doing shopping, let alone a talking millipede. So keep it a short list to start until the local shop gets used to me. Just write what you <laughs> just write what you want. Put it in the money, strap it to my back, and I'll go. Really? So he goes bread, milk, cigarettes, bacon, five things. Twenty quid. 
straps it to the millipede's back and off the millipede goes out into the hall. Millipedes can close doors and everything. Somebody blind out in the hall and he sits there and he's like, "That's I can't believe it. This is amazing. A hundred quid, it's worth every penny. And then he watches EastEnders and he's like, it's half an hour. Millipede's not back from the shop. It'll be fine. He said it takes a bit longer. The shop's like three minutes away, right? That takes a bit longer. That's fine. He watches Tomorrow's World. That's how old this joke this is, by is the way. Old. Right? <laughs> you can now date this joke. It used to be EastEnders and then Tomorrow's World, it right? Sure An hour gone. The, the millipede still hasn't came back. The shop is three minutes away. There was only five items on the list. He's like, fucking hell, somebody stood on him or like it's been too much for the local shop. I'll go and find them. So he gets up and he opens the door to the hallway and the millipede is still in the hallway with the note an hour later with the note and the 20 quid strapped his back. And he goes, what are you doing? Why are you still in the hallway? And the millipede says, give me a chance to put my fucking shoes on. (laughs) (laughs) Hi. Oh, give me a sec. Oh. That's a shaggy, that gets, a shaggy millipede story. It's like gets me every time. I, I love like the image. Saying, saying you don't cry. Uh, Colin is not crying. You've got to ask yourself, how did he get the, the, what would it be, 500 pairs of shoes into the hallway in the first place? Right? There's this loads is where of this. You're being a strange this nerd is, is coming out. Right? There's loads <laughs> of this joke I love. So that's always, I don't know why it's always been my favorite joke. It's very innocent. Do you know, I've heard you know what that I mean? joke, but I could not remember. So I think my kid's um, Dutch grandfather used to tell that in Dutch. Amazing. I was, I was trying to remember how it ended and I could not remember. Uh, so there you go. So it's, bad. It's I did, but I world. said it was so bad. I feel liberated because I told you it was uh, terrible. I'll tell you what, uh, we're going to do a Christmas compilation, Christmas Callie's Christmas Cracker, which can have our favorite jokes. But I don't know if it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be big enough, Cracker, to keep that one in. No, but it no, won't no. Because it's not a favorite. But, to, um, okay, I'll give you a one liner. Yeah, go on. Right. It's a Northern Irish joke, though. Two women are walking down uh, the street, the Newton Arch Road in East Belfast, and they pass a record shop. And one of them points into the window and goes, look, not King Cole. And the other one goes, who the fuck is it then? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, and what piece of, if you could give one piece of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be? Oh, oh. Um, God, that's difficult. You know, that's difficult. Um, probably, I don't know, you can either give like a, a frivolous one and give quite a... I, I, I think if you, you're giving someone advice, it's from what mistakes you've made, I suppose. And I, I think uh, running, running, running away from your... Don't run away. Like, in other words, like if... It, there's a great song by C6 Steve, which is I've started out with nothing and I've still got most of it left. Love and it. I think it's a great song. And I wish I'd had that in my head when I was 23, 24, 25. I was always running away from the council estate, not out of shame, but just because like I, f- I was like, I don't want to work McDonald's again. I don't want to work McDonald's again. And my life was at a really quick pace up until about 40 when I realized most of it's bullshit. And I think I would just like, I suppose I'd give advice to anybody, not that I'm in any position to do so. But the one thing, if I went back again, I would have, I would just slow down and look around me. I would soak it all in. I would just like, my advice would be like, five minutes of every hour you're awake, stop. Because I didn't. And it's only, I enjoy life a lot more than I think, you know, like, because I've stopped and I'm looking around me and I'm appreciating what I'm doing. But like I did, 
you know, I had really quite a, an amazing twenties in Radio One. Like first ever radio job was was just a dream, and I don't, you know, I just ran through it really fast, and I don't remember much of it. I didn't keep anything from it, and you know, so just slow, slow down, like slow down, get off the. This is sounds like an old man talking, but get off the screen and just like experience real life and and just slow down and look around you. Never looked around me enough. Now it's, that's all I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to look around me non-stop. Namaste, that was Colin Murray. Every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week... Well, it's five days before Christmas, for God's sake, and it has been pointed out to me by one or two people over the years that I could possibly do with being a bit lazier now and again. In fact, it has been suggested that it might do me no harm at all to do absolutely nothing once in a while. So that is my plan for the next week. Fuck all. Namaste. So that is it for this episode. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always. Or will we? because next Monday is the 27th of December, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We have absolutely loved all the support we've had from you, lovely listeners, all through this year since we launched the podcast. So as a little Christmas Twixmas, because that's the bit between Christmas and New Year, isn't it? As a little Twixmas treat, we're putting together a special Christmas cracker, Callie's Christmas cracker, compilation of some of our very favorite jokes since the podcast launched earlier this year so that's a little extra for you as a big thank you for all your support and if you want to do something to thank me and my lovely producer mike and the lovely cookie who works on the show as well then share the podcast with people tell them you bloody love it tell them if there's one thing they need to do when they've got nothing going on at this time of year it's getting to namaste motherfuckers this is what you're in for next week what's the best thing about switzerland i don't know but the flag is a big plus namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me Callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, and a very, very happy Christmas, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. Pod people. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. (laughs) To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.